The first one is this. How do we make church work for both believers and unbelievers? And this question comes from last week when we we're looking at the middle bit of 1 Corinthians 14. And right from the outset, I want to say that if you're someone who has just started joining us or you're here for the first time and uh, we've been talking a bit about believers and unbelievers for people who are visitors and who are regulars and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's because we're up to this bit of the Bible, which talks about it a lot. And so thank you for being with us as we're going on this journey. And uh, we are hoping that everyone will know that this is a church where no matter where you are in your journey with God, you are welcome and it is for you. So to answer this question, how do we make church work for both believers and unbelievers? Well, as we saw 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 25, we could see that unbelievers were expected to be in church. And so how do you make it work? Well, you use the Bible. Why? Because the Bible says Jesus is Lord. And so if you're somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet, the Bible tells you all about why it is that he is Lord and how you should follow him. But if you are a person who already follows Jesus as Lord, then the whole Bible tells you how to follow him more and what it means to follow him. So the one message, Jesus is Lord, from the Bible will have complete relevance to both believers and unbelievers all together. But are there some practical things we can do? Well, we want to make our church as intelligible as possible, as understandable as possible. And sometimes that'll mean we reduce some of the in-jokes and the in-house words uh, but one of the good things is because we are a church of all ages, uh, it does help because we are all the time trying to make things as clear as possible. Not simplistic, but accessible to people who haven't been alive very long, people who haven't been Christians very long. And so we're doing that all together. But the thing is that if our church is trying to help everyone know Jesus better by his word and we keep loving each other and welcoming newcomers and having hospitality and the clear word of God, then we trust that unbelievers will join us. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, they will see that God is really in our midst and they will fall down and worship God with us, which would be awesome. Question two, how can believers grow if we avoid deeper teaching to help newcomers? Well, I think it's possible to do both. Uh, we have sermons and question times that are pretty deep and pretty long. Uh, and I see evidence that those who are in our group who have been following Jesus a long time are growing and growing and growing. So it's obviously working in that respect. But we're also seeing that people who've just joined us in the last few weeks, months and even a year or so, for the first time, are slowly, bit by bit, coming on that journey and learning about Jesus. Both of these things are happening. And I think a, a real benefit in us having all-age church is that it really helps us try and get that sweet spot of saying deep and important stuff, but in a way that can be understandable, hopefully, for all ages. Question three, how is using nerdy English words like speaking in tongues? Well, the whole point of this book has been, this bit of this book has been about speaking in tongues, an unintelligible language. And the point I made last week, it's not exactly the same, but... When we are using words that people don't understand that are in English, you may as well be speaking in tongues. And I gave that illustration from the fire brigade, how I turned up and there were all these technical words used when they were speaking on the radio and it took me a while to understand it and I felt a little bit like an outsider. 
but there was a good reason for it. And that brings us to point number four. Can we still use nerdy words when we're trying to include believers? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, there is a place for there to be some Christian nerdy words that we learn. And if you're here for the first time, you might hear us say words and you're thinking, I'm not exactly sure what they mean, but I reckon I'll pick them up eventually. And you will. But like, take, for example, the word sin. It's one very short little word. But it means so much, doesn't it? It's something you do when you shouldn't. It's something you don't do when you should. It's, it's how you make God upset with you. It's how you reject God. It's, a, it's one word that means all these different things. And if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you'll know when I say sin, you go, yeah, yeah, I get all of that stuff. That's a good word for us to learn more about what it means. And the same with a whole bunch of other technical words that over time you'll pick up, even if you've just been joining us for a little while. And that's part of the process of of understanding more about God as well. We don't want to use those words to exclude you or to exclude others, but we want to help broaden our vocabulary because that can be a really useful thing as well. And again, like the RFS, you know, I jump in a truck now and all these words are said on the radio, which I now understand, and I realise why we use them because you can say in two or three syllables something that would otherwise take a whole lot more time on the radio and you just got to get in the truck, put the lights and sirens on and start driving fast and safely. Question five. If I'm driving, get off the road. I'll tell you, get off the footpath. Uh, number five, do we allow everyone to eat the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper is a special meal that Jesus created so that we could remember his death and, and remember why it is that we can, how it is that we can be forgiven and how it is that we can be made his friend. And so if you are with us and you are actively wanting to remember that Jesus died and rose for us, then we invite you to be a part of that meal with us. Jesus always loved including people in meals, and so we do as well. Question six, what does it mean to sing or pray in the Spirit? Well, this is also looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In my Bible the, the, that I use to prepare this, the New Living Translation that we're using here in church, there's a little footnote. You know a little footnote? It's a little letter and it says, look down at the bottom and it tells you what it means. It says, in the spirit with a capital S or in the spirit with a little s. Do you know what the difference might be? Well, the capital S is talking about the Holy Spirit and a little s is talking about something else, your spirit inside or something like that your spiritual side. Uh, the original language didn't have capitals and little letters. Actually, everything was in capitals, but that's another story. But you weren't able to find that out. So you've got to work that out and, and establish it yourself. So I think as we read this, we can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, that he's, he's contrasting praying in the spirit to praying in the mind, to praying with understanding. So it seems to be that here he's talking about a spiritual prayer or a spiritual song that in some sort of way is not understandable to the person who is singing it or saying it. Uh, question seven, do you think that scripture in schools is under threat? Well, someone asked this question because of an article that was in the Sydney Morning Herald about a week or so ago that suggested that scripture in schools is under attack again. Uh, they've been saying that in the Sydney Morning Herald for 200 years probably, um, longer than school scripture has been invented. Uh, certainly it's a regular piece that will be said to say that school scripture is under threat. Uh, the reality is that school scripture 
is, I think, the strongest it's been for decades. Let me tell you a bit about it. At uh, the last election, both main parties said, we are totally committed to it. And so now that they're elected, the state Labor government knows that if they go back on their promise, not only will they annoy Christians, but they'll annoy Muslims, Buddhists, and, and so many others in our nation who are multicultural and actually think that religion is an important part of life. Um, and it's, I've been in some big online meetings where there have been representatives, the, the Minister for uh, Education and the Shadow Minister for Education have come together and said, we really affirm the place of school scripture. Uh, it's actually stronger than ever in that respect. What has happened in the last few years is there's been a hiccup in the introduction of the online enrolment form. And it's not been our fault, it's been the fault and acknowledged by the Minister of Education that you know it's been a bit of a mess up. And now they're working to try and improve that. And I can tell you even already that, that our, our own scripture coordinator, Matt Bartlett, has been working with the school next door to help them strengthen and, and sort out some of the, the bumps in implementing this in our schools. So I expect that we'll see more people in scripture in schools soon, and it'll be stronger than ever before. But why has that happened? Because we've been praying for scripture. So keep praying for scripture and for those like Matt and others at YouthWorks who help strengthen us as we do that ministry. Question eight, if God made Adam and Eve perfect, then how did they sin? Well, technically they were not perfect because they still had the potential to sin. You see, perfection is something that sort of is like maturity, where you, you perfect, you mature. So whilst they were made good, they also had the potential to sin, and given the first opportunity, they did. And so they had the potential to sin, so they were not perfect, but they were certainly good. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, before the creation of the world, God intended for Jesus to die and to rise again, because it actually was better that sin came so that Jesus could die, so that he could be triumphant on the cross, the greatest moment in history, isn't it? Something to think about. Question nine, two to come. How do we use social media in our church? We, we've got a Facebook account. We've got a closed members account. If you're a member and you're not a part of that, send a request. We'll let you in the door. We've also got Instagram and even that platform formerly known as Twitter. Uh, we uh, love to put stuff up on our socials. I think we've been a little bit tardy and slack. We haven't put up as much as we could. If you've got a photo of our group you think would be great, why don't you send it to one of our staff and we'll pop it up there. We do have a social media policy that's been put in place to try and make sure that if you're not wanting to be on social media or you're not able to be on social media that we keep you off it for good reasons. And so if that's the case, be sure to let us know so we can uh, make that happen. But social media is a great way to let people know about what we're doing in our church. Finally, question 10, what does the lyric, your loosened tongues employ, mean? This is from last week when we sang, oh, for a thousand tongues. Uh, it, it just means your loosened tongues work. Like, you know, employment is working sort of thing in a slightly older word way of using that word. But I had a look at the verse. It's actually a really cool verse, this verse 5. It basically says, if you're someone who's deaf, you'll hear God's, verse, uh, God's voice. And if you're someone who can't speak, your tongue will be loosened so you can praise God. And if you can't walk, then you'll be able to leap for joy. It, it's, this, it's this great picture of what it means in the new creation for those who have come to know the Lord Jesus. And it's a beautiful way of describing the transformation that will come. Thanks for all your questions. More to come next week, but now it's time for us to pray. Here's Ben.